Welcome to the Midtown Schuyler Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, if you haven't noticed, uh, there's a lot of construction going on outside right now. Uh, we have about one to maybe two weeks of construction left, so thank you for bearing with us this month. It's, it's almost over. Um, but tonight, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today's event. We are very honored to welcome University of Pennsylvania Professor Lorene Carey to Harrisburg. Lorene is the author of the memoir, Black Ice, three novels including The Price of a Child and Pride, and one book for young readers. The founder of Art Sanctuary and SafeKidsStories.com, she has twice received the Provost Award for Distinguished Teaching at the University of Pennsylvania, where she teaches creative writing. She lives in Philadelphia. In her brand new memoir, Lady Sitting, Carrie captures the ruptures, love, and forgiveness that can occur in a family as she bears witness to her grandmother's 101 year, vibrant years of life. O Magazine calls the memoir radiant, and Booklist writes that, with admiration, triumph, and love, Carrie captures the universal experience of close family loss. We're very honored to have Lorene Carey here in Harrisburg with us tonight, so please join me in giving her a warm Harrisburg welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. It's lovely. I see some young people I've worked with in other places. It's just great. I'll start with a reading. Oh, hello. There you are. <laughs> Extra good. Extra good. Um, why was it that weekends at Nana Jackson's felt like a world apart? Maybe because dressed in old ball gowns, I traveled with the sun patch across the floor of the suburban New Jersey neo-colonial and soaked in more light and luxe than my parents' West Philly apartment could ever offer. Delight and time, the wide-armed fragrant mimosa to climb in summer, the fireplace to stoke in winter, choices all the day long, whatever your little heart desires. Yes, 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 I knew I was being spoiled. That word that obsessed black grown-ups and even kids. What could be worse than to be spoiled, ruined by indulgence, incapable of withstanding hardship as we had done and would do in future? We were brought up by hand as surely as Pip in great expectations, and much prouder of it than he. You spoil could get you a corrective beat down fast. Besides, everybody needed to respect authority, learn limits, and above all, to know that older people valued you, that they loved your undeserving black behind enough to bring you back from wrong to right. I knew myself to be a wimp, a failure, in the toughness category, which was why I went insane with terror at the sound of my mother coming for me or my father reaching for the threatened, though seldom used, belt. If a kid down the street got a beating, and in our little cheek-by-jowl row houses we heard every one, I'd be good for a month. So believe you me, as my mother would say before administering some firm guidance by hand, I knew good and well that my whole Nana deal was off the charts spoiling, which was why with peers, I kept it to myself. What happens in West Collingswood stays in West Collingswood. 
Nana's weekend abundance did not feel unconditional by any means. Our contract was that I would occupy myself while she got things done, and then she'd spoil me. By the time alone felt more like Sabbath, as if God visited me occasionally in those sun patches and let me curl up to its presence. That's just a bit of the childhood, right? That's, that's the person I remember. That's how it was. A month after Nana died, she started to come to me in dreams. She was sitting in her wheelchair, banging her fists on the padded arms, demanding that I get her back into her house in New Jersey. Weak and clouded over with cataracts, she'd refused to have removed. Her eyes nevertheless burned into me. Get me into my house, she shouted. I want to come back. I knew that life force. In the 1980s, Nana contracted pneumonia. She spent Mother's Day and then her birthday in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital under the neon halo of its namesake. When I brought a new pink nightgown to the hospital and she commanded in a whisper that I was to save the nice box, I knew she'd make it. Because <laughs> she wanted that box for later, right? So she was gonna be there for it. In her mid-90s, Nana survived a car accident that plowed her head into the wheel windshield as she drove home from work. A month later, as I drove her to her tiny South Philly real estate office, she asked whether I had any doubts about her buying a new car. The summer she turned 100, Nana contracted a bladder infection that started to take her down. It was midsummer 2007, and we were hosting a reunion of the descendants of the 11 Barbados Drayton siblings on my mother's side who came to the United States in the 20th century. We held it at my husband's church in Philadelphia with its protected greensward and sunny parish hall. One cousin from Barbados stayed with us at the rectory. I'd cooked and refrigerated three kinds of meat stew she liked to eat for breakfast on the kitchen porch where she could watch the birds. Hummingbirds came to the feeder they were my husband's favorite. But my cousin developed a special fondness for those large brown birds that pull worms from the ground after rain. What are they? When we told her, she shouted, Robin? Robin Redbreast? Were these indeed the Robin Redbreasts of her post-colonial but still thoroughly English grammar school readers? Oh, dear, dear Robin Redbreasts that live in the Northern Hemisphere and the English romantic imagination and in the books they sold to Caribbean schoolchildren. I made a mental note to tell my Nana the Robin Redbreast anecdote that evening. But toward the end of the reunion, I was tired, so I decided to ring her to tell her I wouldn't come that night. Instead, I'd see her the next morning. But Nana did not answer. I rang several times the same number she'd had ever since I can remember, the second phone number I ever memorized. It began with UL 
for Ulysses. I didn't even bother to ring her cell phone, even though she used to call, uh, used it to call me a few times when she'd had a problem with the landline. I found my sister Carol and asked her to come with me on the half hour drive to Nana's house, which would take 20 minutes that night. Our older daughter, Laura, who just graduated from college, said she'd come too. On the way, I rang Nana's doctor. By now, he was in his 90s too, with a geriatric schedule, no answering service, and a home phone he might or might not answer with or without his hearing aid. If he was asleep, there'd be a long grappling with the receiver followed by a startled near, near shout, hello? No name, no doctor so-and-so here, nothing to distinguish him from a wrong number to the nursing home. Even back when his office had regular hours and normal doctorly protocols, my sister would sometimes ask me whether I thought he was a quack. True enough, Nana liked her medical and financial professionals under her control. On a recent phone call, Carol had asked me whether he was still licensed. <laughs> After training at Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism, working as a reporter, followed by marriage, a successful corporate career, and two children, Carol turned to lengthy training as a flight instructor and finally a professional pilot. My sister handles gargantuan volumes of factual material. Had she lived here, my sister, the pilot, would have checked to see whether the man responsible for our grandmother's care still had a valid New Jersey license. I was ashamed to say I didn't know. Nana would not have wanted to know. Nana didn't care. She's strong, very strong, so it probably won't kill her, the doctor said of the current infection. But on the other hand, it might. Pause, beat, silence. So your suggestion? If she were your family member, what would you do, I pushed. Call an ambulance, get her to the hospital. Um, so we did that. Um, in the hospital, um, I stayed with her the first couple of nights in the hospital. The third night, she was feeling better. She told me, go home, be with your family. And when I came back, I found that the call, the cord for the call button had been pulled out of the wall. She hadn't been able to pull out the wall because it was still you know, tied in a knot to her bed. Someone had taken it out. She was wet. It was, it, it was really very hard. Uh, the social worker asked when it was time for her to go back where she was going to. It was very clear they were not going to let this lady go back at 100 years old to a two-story house to live by herself. She'd been doing that. She'd been working. She'd been doing everything she could. We visited. Um, I went there three or four times a week. My father went three or four times. We figured out how to make it work, but not. Um, Barb, so she moved in with us to the rectory of my husband's church. Barbara, the hospice nurse, visited within a day. At first, Nana wanted nothing to do with her, zero. Medical people asked her the same questions over and over. Hadn't anyone written down the answers? Didn't they have carbon paper anymore? 
Didn't they have computers for Barbara to use? Same damn questions. Nurse Barbara spoke to her with deference, and Nana answered in swallowed monosyllables. She told Nurse Barbara she couldn't see the use of it. Barbara was not deterred, thank the Lord. Well, then she asked, what would Nana like to talk about? Nana told her about her own father, who had raised five children after his wife's death after childbirth. Nana told Barbara that her father had died in his sleep. She said it as usual in a defiant, perfect death haiku. He ate his supper, went to bed, and then next day, he didn't get up. And that's how you'd like it too, Nurse Barbara said. She voiced simple compassion, clear-eyed, practiced, never complicated by pity. Nana grunted an acknowledgement. Well, I can't promise you that, but I can work with you and your family to see how peaceful we can make it. Finally, Nurse Barbara, Nana let Nurse Barbara examine her, and as she ran her hand over Nana's back, Barbara marveled at the smoothness and suppleness of her skin. Nana said they all just liked to flatter her. When Barbara left, Nan implied that she must have been impressed by the rectory. My husband, usually called Father Bob in the parishes he's served, says that many worship communities agree not to specify exactly what happens after death. People sit next to one another for years in the pews, thinking, feeling, intuiting, or assuming widely, even wildly different deaths and after deaths, from wings and a crown, to rest, to oblivion, to straight up dust. What did Nana believe? Don't get me to lying. For all the time we spent together intimately and despite my farcical attempts to create for Nana as much in-house independence as possible, I cannot say what she hoped for or feared. But she did fear, and in fact, Nana was terrified. Living in the rectory with vestry and prayer meetings, a weekly in-house mass service, children's gatherings, it all gave her gladness. But just as the fireplace dispelled the gloom of winter, none of it brought ultimate comfort or what the funeral mass calls sure and certain hope. Nana liked knowing she had a priest in the family, which she said as if he were a possession. My sister Carol joked that Nana was, as Madonna sang, a material girl. So how was she to imagine the extinguishing of the body? What does Bob say about death? She asked me after Barbara told us that hospice was for people expected to live no more than six months. Then Nana asked me, almost in the same breath, to take particular care after she died of the Chinese jardineers on the fireplace mantle, because they were probably her, the best of her beloved things. Bob says that God is love, Nana, I said, ignoring the jardineer directive. <sighs> Nana sighed. Whenever, so, so this is a new book. And whenever I go to different places, I mean, there are different parts of it. And you never know kind of what part to 
read what, what different groups will, will like. I was um, telling Alex that in one place there was a, uh, a woman who was part of a mortality book group. And she showed up there saying for me to read the death scene. And other people said, no. <laughs> no, don't do it. Um, some people, some people want to um, hear more about uh, the, there was one place I went, it was the Athenaeum in Philadelphia. Everybody there is an intellectual. And they wanted to hear about the history, about the, the father who came up from uh, Jim Crow South and what had happened to him during those times. There were some other people who um, really wanted to hear a sort of naughty Nana in her first marriage, um, and others who, <laughs> um, others who sort of need to, to hear about the, the taking care, the, the everyday, the everyday part. So I'm trying out different bits and trying to see which work. I'm trying to read Harrisburg. This is a serious, you're kind of a serious bunch of people in Harrisburg. I guess that's you, you're responsible for all of Pennsylvania, you know? We depend on you, all of, we do, we do. Let me try, let me try this. All right. We took care of my grandmother's house in New Jersey. She wouldn't sell it. We kept saying, Nana, please, can we just take care of you? And so, but she kept saying, um, I, I said, in fact, that it would be a great mercy to us all if she would let us sell the house. Oh, no, not her house. Nana would not consider selling. Why, that was her house. I reminded her of the upkeep the taxes, how old houses degrade if no one is there to use the plumbing and open and close the doors. Well, maybe if it was too much for me, we could find someone else to do it. I reminded her gently of how suspicious she was of anyone other than her tiny family going into and out of her house. And she was sorry, so sorry, she said, to put this on me and me with my foundation, which was how she referred to Art Sanctuary, the black arts organization I ran, and the family and the university and the church. What, she wondered, could she do to help? Sell the house, Nana. Oh, honey. We sat together in the sun spot, each of us feeling put upon. She tried again using her signature hand pat right from my childhood. But what would she do, she asked, laughing, if Bob and I put her out? Put her out? In all the years we'd been adults together? Where, where was the evidence? I did not mention, though it lay before me, if not before us, a life together, from baking to banking. And the last five years since her car accident, the not a stroke, when we'd come daily for months for dinners and drives, pickups and drop-offs, bill paying and laundry. Too bad, we would keep the house. 
So we did. We kept the house. We kept it going. We managed things. Um, and we had helpers, and we just figured it, figured it out. What was very hard, though, was getting medical care for her. As I said, the do her doctor was not able to do things. So we found out there were a few doctors with this kind of new, smart idea of house calls, again, like back in the old days. I tried to get one of those doctors. They said no, because even though she had Medicare for hospitals and for hospice, there was a freeze on her Medicare for doctors. I kept calling back. I called back. I called back different times. I asked some different questions. Then I reached Jose. He had a beautiful Spanish accent, strong enough that I had to listen very carefully and ask him to repeat some things. But he was new to the job, very interested, he said, in the service part of customer service. And besides, he was, he said, the kind of guy who likes to get to the bottom of things. It was Jose who told me that although he said he probably was not supposed to, um, he told me that a new company had taken over collecting long-standing bills, which I could understand cost Medicare millions a year. I could absolutely understand it. But how much was the problem on Nana's account? How much was owed? The number, he said, looked like less than $400. <gasps> Just $400? Tears of relief pricked my eyelids. How can I pay it? Well, this is the hard part. You can. <laughs> Jose said this looked like it had to do with a car insurance company. Had she had a car accident maybe four or five years ago? Yes, leaving work. The car had gotten away from her, she said, going faster and faster as she stomped on the brake. She'd never hear otherwise that maybe she hit the gas. The car zoomed through the wide intersection at Broad Street without hitting anyone before it bashed into bollards, cemented into the sidewalk to protect pumps at a corner gas station. On her way home from school, our older daughter had seen the car. Oh my God, Mommy, it looked like Nana's car, but I couldn't believe it. You should have seen it. The windshield had a big round dent in it from the driver's head. It was Nana's head. That afternoon in the ER, I'd asked Nana as the resident sewed back on the side of her bottom lip whether she'd been wearing her seatbelt. Her answer spoken through her teeth, it wouldn't have made any difference. Yes, I told Jose, there had been a car accident. Well, it looked like the insurance company had paid bills, but between Medicare and the insurance company was a disputed $400 fee. So I asked him, trying to understand, this is a dispute between the insurance company and Medicare? Yes, he explained. Okay, knowing I'd never get to talk to Jose again, that, like in The Sound of Music, officials might be waiting off stage even now to take him away from customer service. So, not until the insurance company filed a certain form to zero out the dispute could the account be activated. It was important to get the verbs right. Otherwise, you could talk to the next person until they hung up on you because they didn't know that by saying clear the balance, your poor ignorant self really meant zero out. Okay, okay, 
So here we are. I talked to the insurance company, and it, it's, it's a mess. Then I began a relationship with Nana's car insurance company for a car she no longer owned to clear up an accident she'd had four or five years before when she was still driving herself to work four mornings a week. I chatted them up about how long she'd been insured with them and never had an accident. I told them about her old white Thunderbird with the red upholstery. I told them her house was still insured with their home insurance. I was craven like people in kidnapping movies trying to connect with their captors. One woman popped gum in my ear. I've always loved chewing gum. Funny, isn't it, that we have that in common? Like, what are the odds? <laughs> Customer reps said they could not accept $400 from us. Could they tell me the doctor who was owed and I'd find that person and pay him or her and send them a receipt. No, sorry, they couldn't divulge that information. Whenever they said information, my hand let go of the string that kept me grounded. Untethered, my mind and I floated out the window. Was it the guy who sewed her lip back on? I could find him, I bet. Um, The supervisor took a long time to come onto the line after I asked for her. By then, I'd written a brief narrative to keep myself on script. I spoke it to her low and slow, clean and articulate. It's the telephone voice my children mimic and then fall out laughing. She said she was happy to consider it and get back to me. She did bring back, but she, like all the rest of them, was sorry but. Because her voice had sounded competent and compassionate, because she'd had the decency to call back, my eyes welled up. I told her that I was nearly 50 years old, that I ran an urban nonprofit arts organization, that I raised money and supported my staff, that I had never, ever missed a payroll, but that this process, this thing here, had me blubbering on the phone like a baby. For lack of $400, my grandmother could not access the Medicare she paid in since Medicare had been created. 1965, I told her. That had been a big year for me. Nobody on these phone calls had been born yet. But I turned nine that year. It was a coming of age year. My baby sister learned to sit and crawl. Black people finally got the right to vote for real in America. Malcolm X was assassinated. With Operation Rolling Thunder, we began a massive bombing of North Vietnam. Watts exploded after a bad traffic stop. Nana still came to pick me up from school on Friday afternoons, and the olive green carpeted house looked and smelled like Sabbath. No longer. Grandmother could lie here in my house and crap her brains out. That's what almost happened. And I could take morning after morning off from work so that people far away with no last names could talk to me as if she were a Welsher and I were an idiot or a thief. Now I was bawling. All of it tumbled out. 
how I had to bring her to live with us because on the one night I did not spend in the hospital, someone pulled out her call button wire. She can be difficult, I said, reminding myself why she could not be housed in an institution. Across the hall behind me in her long sunny bed sit parlor, Nana now sat on the edge of her bed, long legs swung over the side, her thighs cellulite free, earphones on, eating her lumberjack breakfast and cracking wise with our young helper. She was all better, but what about next time? The supervisor said she was sorry we were silent for a beat. Then she said that in this particular case, she could see no harm in zeroing out the years old claim and sending the necessary form to release the hold on Nana's account. No buts. So there was paperwork to do and I did it, and I'm almost ready. Paperwork to do, I was almost there. Something went wrong. However, and I had to call back. I got a different young woman, not the supervisor. A representative at the headquarters talked to me, did not like the sound of it, would not take the baton, and instead of helping me finish the deal, started to crawl backwards through the story. She was going to undo our arrangement just for funsies. I reminded her that I was not a complainant trying to get over, but a current customer. Nana wouldn't sell her house. We still had the insurance. I need to talk to a supervisor, I told her. She needed to put me on hold, AKA time out, AKA punishment. My patient computer waited in front of me with the company, their company's website open to the page listing their leadership which I noted in case I had to have some names. Then this other idea occurred to me. I had mailed the form to that very office and kept a copy. I typed the address into 2007 Google Earth. There it was. <laughs> the building in which worked the people who stood between Nana and a doctor. I found myself fixated on the front door Switching the time out, stupid earworm, faux classical music hold line to speakerphone, I scoured the US Air website, which had flights out of Philadelphia every few minutes. Bingo. By the time she came on to tell me that her supervisor was not available, I told her that I was looking at her building the one with the faux Grecian columns, and that while she was busy not getting the supervisor, I had reserved a seat on a flight that would get me there by 3.30 p.m. She could find a supervisor now, or hey, wait until 3.30 for me to arrive in their lobby. Then she could explain that it was because of her that this black lady had flown in and plopped the hell off because I was very likely at that point to lose my self-control. Her choice. But why, I asked, why would you die in this ditch? Why was it worth her job to ensure that a hundred-year-old black lady, my grandmother, who had paid premiums before, as I told her, from before she was born, and would be paying them after she lost her job? Why did she want to keep her from seeing a doctor? I told her again what their building looked like. 
I growled about my surplus frequent flyer miles <laughs> and how I had the ticket ordered but could cancel within 24 hours. Quoting our young helper, I said that Nana had almost died and repeated the airline and the number of the flight I had reserved. Ended up, this latest young woman, though rude and dismissive, was not a total fool. Nana got her clearance. They zeroed out the balance. We're going to take questions from the audience at this time. So if you have a question, just feel free to raise your hand, and I'll come around with the mic. Yeah, no, no, I can run, I can run. He did that so I could have a swing. I'm quick. Thank you very much. So I have to say thank you, and what drew me to your book, and I ordered it as soon as it came out, um, was it, it read to me as there were so many fringes in the book. I guess that's the best way for me to describe it. And so I started reading it yeah, this week, and what I really, really enjoyed was the fact that you sort of wove in there, I'm a nurse, and so mm. I really liked that you covered the part about, and the big topic being now aging in place was so good, and the part that you touched on about home, and home is so important to so many elderly people that I talk to. Nobody wants to lose their home. It, it's home. You know, my dad gave me the story where, you know, did you sell the shed when you sold the house? <laughs> when he was only the shed mm. went with the house down. I'm caring for a woman now who is angry at the real estate agent. She's 99 and they sold her home. Um, and she's angry about that. But your tapestry in there covered everything from aging in place, which was where I was going with this, the great migration, which is a great story unto itself. And so I guess where I was, my question to you is, so with this book, was there a particular fringe or tapestry you were trying to weave together? Or was there one tapestry, that one fringe that drew, drew you in? Or you just wanted to cover everything with Nana in that time? You know, the, the thing is, when you start a book, um, it's, true, what, it's true for me, something I always talk to about my students, which is you think you know where it's going but you do discover as you write. So you learn, like you start with what's the story. And that's all, I mean, I put that up on my computer and if I'm not paying enough attention, I write it on the wall, I run it, like what's the story? That's it, what's the story? Well, if the story is, um, Rosalie Lorene, Hagen's Carrie Jackson um, at 101, goes on to hospice, gets off hospice, lives, lives until she dies with her family. If, if that's the story, then what else happens? So you start writing that and you realize one of the things is that like she brought her history into our life. We brought the way we do business into her life. There's this cultural, even within a family, there are ways that, <laughs> my mother comes to my house and she turns around my toilet paper because I don't roll it the way she likes. Like, you know, you go into your own home and you do things differently. 
right? You make your cinnamon buns with raisins, and your mother made it with nuts. You, every, like you, you make your own little life culture. And then the culture, the family you came from, returns, or, or you know, or, or you find things were wrong, or you've missed things, or, so all of it starts to come in, and um, really it goes foundational, because at the end of life, what matters is ultimately, what do you really believe? Well, your tapestry was beautiful. I loved right. it. Thank and I think you. that's what made it so special for me was how, how you wove it all together. Thank you. So thank you very much. I'm I glad it, your, And your readings that you picked were perfect. In fact, it makes me want you to do the whole book. <laughs> so thank you. I did an audio book, by the way. See, it's there. <laughs> thank you so much for that. Part of what you're, what you're always trying to do if you do weave in is figure out, is it too much of this? Is it too much? How, you know, how do you move through it? <laughs> Great. That's good. Other questions? Please. Yes. Hi. Thank you for coming to our city. Um, Hi. I just lost my grandma this past year. Wow. And wow, I'm, sorry. I'm so grateful that you made this book because I don't really have anyone to relate to about it. But hmm. um, I wanted to know, how did you fill your time? I was with my grandma 24-7. So me and my mom and her were together wow. all of our days. So wow. how did you fill your time when she left this earth? When I left, there's a, there's a part of it about after she left. I had, um, I had too many things to do. And the way I filled my time was doing too many more as if I could distract myself, you know? Um, and that, that was foolish. But I didn't know, I didn't have any other way. I didn't know what else to do. So I worked, um, I agreed to do a, a job writing scripts for the videos at um, National Independence Mall, the president's house, and these are nine enslaved people. So I adopted my own ghosts. So I learned about them. And what I realized now, just now, looking at your lovely face, thinking about this, was I think I was excavating other ancestors. Um, early on, I felt like I, I almost felt haunted. I, a couple years later, I took, uh, I applied for and then, oh, I know what else I did. I went on to the School Reform Commission in Philadelphia when the mayor asked. And then I was working 90 hours a week. I could think about nothing else because it was a complete disaster year. The money was terrible. Everything was, everything was bad. It was, uh, so I did that until I ended up having crazy asthma and shingles and had to go off on medical leave. Now, once I got well, I decided it was time to write. And it was time to do yoga. And it was time to try to rid my body of um, aches everywhere. I felt, like, I felt like my aging, like I had been healthy and done well and 
been energetic and you know you get older and you get bad and you get stuff but you're you know energetic I felt like I just went like I was on skis I thought I was getting older every morning everything hurt more two weeks later everything hurt more um, and my daughter when we I was in Vermont with my daughter my crazy athlete snowboard instructor daughter she like this the girls like iron and she said mommy you know what you always love let's let's do a, a yoga class together so we did and we did a particular we went into a particular pose and I cried like a fool I just I was sweaty I was on the mat I slithered around and finally I just cried so badly I couldn't and my daughter said to me she said you know mommy this yoga might do you some good you know <laughs> um, but that I finally did that and found where it felt to me I had, I had kept grief in my body. Yeah. About 15 years ago, I had the privilege of delivering a eulogy at my grandmother's service. And so I put a lot of thought and energy into what I was going to say, as you can imagine. And I interviewed each of her four daughters and ask them, you know, what was your legacy from grandma? What, what did you get? And as usual, you know, you get a mix of good and not so good. True I mean, I think I inherited my, my grandmother's good skin, but I got bad teeth from somewhere, you know, and <laughs> things like that. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm curious as to what you feel your grandmother's legacy is in your life. I'll tell you the truth, I think her legacy, it, I think this book is part of her legacy. You should see my mother. My mother said, okay, you've done that book. <laughs> my mother's jaw was really tight about that. A whole book. She got a whole book. <laughs> but I think it's sort of it. I think there's that. Um, I even did, I did this uh, residency at the American Lyric Theater and did a 30-minute opera about it, too, because it was at the same time and... Uh, There are some ancient people, uh, there are some people I knew grew up, uh, I grew up with some Jews who used to say that as long as you speak someone's name, they haven't, they haven't died. So, so I started this because I kept having these dreams about Nana saying, get me back into my house. And me saying to her, Nana, you are dead. Go away, leave me, you, you are dead, stop it. But here's the thing, she always wins. <laughs> always. So her legacy is, she won. Okay. Okay, you're not. Good for you. <clears throat> well, on that note, so what <laughs> happened to the, uh, the Chinese jardinier she asked you to take care of? Um, I took them up to my sister. My sister has a beautiful home in Montclair and a, a, a gorgeous mantle to put them on. And she will take care of them beautifully. That sister who's a pilot, yeah, she'll be fine with them. Any other questions? Oh, wow. Yes. Well, why don't you make me think about them? Wow. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? 
Oh, oh. You don't have your, um, here. In opening the box, I, I found some uh, some family pictures, mm -hmm. but the other thing I found was um, a picture I had taken in the early 80s of Notre Dame's rose window. Ooh. And she's like, well, you can't get rid of it now because the windows, you know, it's been destroyed because wow. of the fire. And I was like, so as you're reading this and I'm going through the stuff in the house, I was wondering what happened yeah. and what you did with those. Yeah, I don't, you do, you try to be careful. I know some people who are wonderfully careful, and they take each thing and they think about its placement. And they, and I would it. I hate the stuff. I hate being bothered with it. I hate thinking about it. I hate thinking. I say that, but it's also true that there are a few things that I've loved. Like it's just a matter of what it is that you you love, and um, I tried to be careful. I also tried to make sure that I did not sell anything. I sold her house in order to sort of honor all of her, you know, 2000, this one, 2000. So I sold her house and just managed all of those. Her house was worth 35 or 40% in when it sold of what it would have been worth before the housing bubble went, right? So there was nothing to be done about that. Um, but the, the, the things, what I wanted to make sure was that nothing was sold, they were only given away. And there were a few things that stayed in my basement until I could figure out what to do with them. Yeah, please. Uh, so I, I'm going to qualify this with, I kind of stumbled in off the street, I admit, so I apologize contextually if I'm missing something, but I was feel like things happen for a reason, and the bits and pieces that I've heard here as I've come in this evening have actually moved me close to tears. The way that you've read and, and what you've shared was just beautiful and amazing, and I was really inspired by uh, some of the questions being asked, um, and it's had me just in these few moments thinking again about my grandmother and that relationship that just, as you're saying, just stays and stays. I've written um, my grandmother's story. I, I have some creative writing that's published, not that piece. That piece I've been working on wow. for, what, 25 wow. plus years. Wow. Um, I don't know if it fits what you were saying, but I know what's holding me back, and that's what I wanna ask you about, is, is my mom. My mom isn't so sure she wants some of that story to be told, even though I know the space that I would share that story from is one of love and admiration and pride for my grandmother um, and what I learned about resiliency and everything or what I learned about from her. But there's some dark stuff in that sometimes. My mom doesn't want to tell that story, and so it sat on my shelf. I've reworked it different ways. I've changed the voice. I've and it just doesn't move, and I don't think it's gonna go away. So I'm just curious, did you run into anything that you're like, should I tell that? Or, um, and if you did, how did you get past that? Yes, I did. And I think one always does with memoir, for sure. I had the good fortune of having written about going to boarding school 
um, at the beginning of my writing, sorry, it's a misplaced modifier. At the beginning of my, mo of my writing career, I, had, I wrote a memoir, Black Eyes, about going to boarding school. And I had to make lots of decisions about what to say or what not to say. So right after sort of journalism, I had been working very hard at just these questions. Hmm. What, and so I've had to come up with some rules. And the rule for me is that after, no matter what happens when I publish, when I wake up in the morning, the next day, I want to be able to look at everyone in that book and say, if you don't like it, I'm, I'm sorry, I did my best. Everybody draws that line in different places. Uh, for me, I actually gave it to, um, gave black ice to both my parents um, and said, please read it while I still have time to make changes. And if there's anything you don't want in, I'll take them out. In this case, I offered it to both my, now my, both my parents are much older. Uh, and in this case, I offered it. My mother read enough. Um, there's some parts she's not crazy about, but she has been very generous with me and says, okay, I know this is what you have to do, okay. My father um, said that he wouldn't read it. He would read it when it came out. He said, I don't, I don't, need, I don't need to read it. Um, but but writing about his relationship with her, them not talking to each other, um, him and me, you know, sort of at the, at the end of her life, my grandmother had this thing, she wanted us to dig a hole and pour her ashes into it. Just find her father's family grave and dig in it. I said to her, no, I'm not gonna do that. It's a cemetery. They sell plots. You can't just go and dig a hole. That's, that's like coming in here and I say, oh, this is a nice bookstore. I think I'll just take this book. No, no. Oh, and it says theft, too. <laughs> so I thought, so, you know, and we used to have this joke about, you know, oh, Nana, and she'd say, oh, why are you so difficult? And, the, and so I thought we were all fine. We go out to the cemetery, my dad and me, because you need next of kin to say yes for the cremation. And it's raining, it's cold, it's horrible. We have to wait, so we go to Dunkin' Donuts. And my dad says, well, you know what my mother really wanted? She wanted you and I to go out at night, take a shovel, and take her ashes, and just pour them in. Wait a minute, you know, the, she convinced you to do it because I said no? And now we had to fight it out about that. You know, at the end of that conversation, my father and I ended up talking about why he never uh, paid money for my sister in college. That's where, that's where we ended. It took me a long time. So my rules were, what do I need to tell to tell this story? What does journalism say? Journalism says I can say what people said in public, what people did in public. 
and what I did in response. I can't go into anybody's mind. I can't say what they're thinking. You know, I worked with these lovely, some of these young people, they're sitting there, they look like they're paying attention. Maybe they're thinking about dinner, I don't know. Like, I, I'm not in their mind, so I can only say those things. And there were some things I never said that I felt, that I feel were not mine to tell. So why did I tell the thing about Carol because, uh, and him not paying? Because he looked at me and said, didn't my mother pay for her in college? And it was this moment of, wait a minute, here we are all together in this life all these years. We don't know, like there's no, there's no intimacy. We don't even know. What, what, what are we talking? Um, so that was part of the question. What do we know about each other? Where is love? What is love? Do, did we really love each other? Or were we doing parallel play next to each other like two-year-olds? That's, that's what the book is really asking. Is it true, like Song of Solomon says, that love is strong as death? Is it true? Is it, was it true for her? Is it true for me? Can I live into it? Can I make that true? But there's some stuff I'll never write. Yeah. We have time for maybe one or two more questions. I have a question. Um, Uh-oh. So we had, a, we had an author about a year ago. Um, he wrote a memoir about losing someone he was, he was close to. And I asked him about if the, if the writing process was uh, cathartic at all. And his response was, I thought I was setting him up for a, for a pretty easy answer, and his, his response kind of shocked me. He said, he said, absolutely not. It was excruciating every second of it. Um, and so I guess I'd like to pose that same question to you, the process of writing. Was it, did you find it cathartic? Um, I find it therapeutic. Okay. I don't think there's a straight-up catharsis, but it, I think the first draft is often therapeutic. And then the question is, okay, now I've had therapy. Can I now do blues and turn pain into art? You know, can I make it beautiful enough so that it is of intellectual and emotional use to other people? Is, does it sing? I mean, that's the opera question, right? Does it sing? And that's very different from what did I have, because what, what goes on with me is you know, in the morning, we, we get up and we do things that we don't share right now, right? We go to the bathroom, we wash, we do our teeth, we do our hair, we do it. But that, we don't, when we come out, you see the results of that. You know, we've, our hair is combed, our bodies are clean, and we have clothes on. But I don't show you, me and the Q-tip, you don't, that's not... Do you know what I mean? So, so it's, it's, it's therapeutic, but after that, you finish your, if you finish your therapy and make it into art, that's, that's about craft. That's about craft and art, which is different from how did I feel. Because you don't ask people to come in and pay money so, for your own catharsis. You, you create a work of art for them. That's my hope. Yeah. 
Any last questions? If not, we're going to wrap it up. Can we give a huge round of applause for Lorene? Thank you. Thank you.